Okay, so we are going through the book of Mark. We started in Mark chapter 1, six, five and a half months ago, and now we're in Mark chapter 8. We're halfway through. Uh, and this is really this passage that we're going to drill down in today. This is like the, the, the turning point. Uh, last week was sort of the setup and this week is really the, the key turning point in the book. This is where the, the, you know, the main question of the book is addressed. And so we're going to, we're going to jump right into it. Um, and it's really a unique, a unique situation that happens, uh, a unique miracle that happens in this, in this passage. So Mark 8, and we're going to go uh, 22 through 33. And they came to Bethsaida. This is Jesus and his disciples. They're in a boat. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his hands and laid his hands on him, he asked him, he asked the blind man, do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And the man opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he went and, and he sent him home. And Jesus said to him, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, other, others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them, the disciples, that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I love this passage. I mean, there is so much going on in this passage. There is this uh, very strange miracle that happens. And then we get, you know, Peter, who's the, you know, going to be the leader of the church being called Satan and rebuked. Um, have you ever known something, but not really known it until later? Have you ever had something sort of dawn on you progressively? Like you had the information, but you didn't totally get it until later on. Um, Tim Keller, the pastor at Redeemer uh, in, in New York, he, when he preached on this passage, he told a story that I thought was very interesting. He told, tells a story about a friend of his who used to pick him up at the airport whenever uh, he would travel to Chicago. And this friend would pick him up, and his friend would never wear a seatbelt. And they'd be in the car, and they would, the guy would never wear a seatbelt. And, and Tim Keller would say, hey, you know, you ought to wear your seatbelt. It's the law. It's, you know, be safe and you know and the guy's like ah, I'm, I'm not worried about it one day the guy picked him up and he had a seatbelt on and Tim Keller said oh I see you're wearing your seatbelt what happened and he said well a friend of mine was in a car accident and he and he didn't have a seatbelt on he got really badly injured so I've just decided that I'm gonna start wearing my seatbelt well the guy knew 
you know, the guy has always known that you should have your seatbelt on, but it's not until something happened, some situation happened where the truth of the reality, the information sort of sunk in from his head into his heart and changed his behavior and changed the way he behaved. Um, so that is what's happening in this story. This story, this passage today is about the process of spiritual illumination, the process of spiritual insight, okay? And it's about the nature of spiritual reality. So Jesus is demonstrating two things in the story. One is the process by which we start to understand the kingdom of God and the content of what that really means. What is, what is that? What is spiritual reality? Um, and he does this by performing this very strange and unique miracle uh, and he does, he does this miracle in an effort to demonstrate to his disciples and to us today this truth that he's going to tell us about spiritual illumination, the process, and the nature of it. Um, what I love about the book of Mark is that, and I, the, the reason we're reading it in sort of large chunks like this, is that to really understand any given passage, any, any given portion of it you have to see the context you have to read like what's right before it and what's right after it and see and see it in in its larger context okay so last week we talked about um what happened when jesus was at at dalmanutha and then he confronted the pharisees the pharisees he and the pharisees got in this big argument if you recall and they said show us a sign and he said i'm not going to show you a sign and then um he got in the boat with his disciples um, Charles, would you put on that map and I'll, uh, and I'll, sh- and I'll show him. So he's down there near Magdala. That's where he was when he got in the fight with the, the site or with the Pharisees. And you see where Bethsaida is right there at the top of the sea of Galilee. Um, that's where they were heading in the boat. And if you remember last week, we talked about Jesus, he, he got in this argument and then he gets in the boat with his disciples and he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Beware, he's saying, of this sort of incremental hypocrisy and sin that can creep into your life and take over your life. And so he's giving this profound spiritual insight, this profoundly deep spiritual truth, and his disciples completely miss it. And after Jesus says it, they, they think that he's mad at them because they forgot to bring food in the boat and there's only one loaf of bread in the boat and they're, they're completely confused about what... Jesus is doing and that if you recall last week Jesus sort of just lets him have it and he says don't you get it don't you have eyes to see don't you have ears to hear don't you understand how many loaves were left over when I fed 5,000 how many loaves were left over when I fed 4,000 he just goes after him and then uh, if you recall there's the long the long silent boat ride from Magdala to Bethsaida Um, I was reminded again actually this week of another one of these instances where there's that sort of long silent sort of pause after something bad happens. Um, I was, when I was in high school, we, uh, a buddy of mine, Kenny Spangle and his girlfriend, this girl named Krista Hickey, one day it's snowing out and we say, Hey, you know what? We've been at school all morning. We should take the afternoon off. Uh, and so the three of us take off, play hooky from school. We go to Kenny Spangle's house. We order some Emo's pizza. We turn on some music. We're hanging out. We're having an awesome time. And, then we see Kenny Spangle's dad's car pull into the driveway. Um, Kenny Spangle's dad's a pretty big guy, and he's not one that, you know, he doesn't like this kind of 
tomfoolery sort of stuff. He's a pretty serious guy. And, you know, we're all going, oh, no. So Kenny Spangle, Krista Hickey, and I, like complete morons, run back to Kenny's room and try to hide in his closet. And so the three of us are jammed in his closet, and we're like dead silent, standing there going, oh, no, what's going to happen? And we hear Ken Spangle's dad creep down, or, you know, we hear the creaking down the hallway. We hear the door to Kenny Spangle's room open. And, of course, the door to the closet opens, and the three of us are standing there going, ah. It was a long, quiet car ride back to Pattonville High School that afternoon. I could see the back of Kenny Spangle's dad's neck just sort of bulging with, you know, rage. It was kind of red. And anyway, it was a... Um, the disciples are having this moment, okay, on the on the boat ride to Bethsaida. And, and, and they're sitting there. They're riding up there going, what did we do wrong? What don't we get? What are we? What is he trying to communicate to us that we're not understanding, okay? And Jesus is probably sitting there going, how do I get through to these guys? You know, or he may be saying, God... Why did you give me these numbskulls? Like, can't, couldn't you have given me some brighter disciples? Um, but uh, thank God that he doesn't always choose, like, the most brilliant people. I mean, he chooses us, which is pretty great. But um, so, so they're on their way up to Bethsaida. They get to Bethsaida, and immediately the townsfolk of that region come together and they bring Jesus a blind man, okay? They bring him a, b- a blind man. Uh, and he performs this strange miracle. Um, he spits in the man's eyes. He presses his hands on the man's eyes. The man doesn't see completely, and so Jesus does it again. Why, we ask, doesn't Jesus just heal the guy? He's done it many times before. We've been reading through the book of Mark. He's done it remotely. He does it by word. He's even said, you know, when the Syrophoenician woman came to him, uh, he just said, you know, your daughter's, your daughter's healed. Uh, when the centurion comes to him, he says, you know, your servant is healed. Doesn't even have to look at him, doesn't have to be around him, doesn't have to touch him, doesn't have to do anything. When the woman comes to be healed from the issue of blood, she touches the hem of his garment, done. In this case, Jesus goes through this very strange ritual. And he's doing it for a reason. And when we look at the context, we see why he's doing it, okay? So he's got this whole, this whole issue about why can't you see, why can't you hear me? Then he performs this miracle. And then immediately following the miracle, he says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So what Jesus is doing in this, in this miracle and in the, in the context of this miracle is that he's trying to demonstrate some, a spiritual truth. He's not just healing a person, but he's demonstrating a very deep uh, and penetrating spiritual truth. And this is also the first time in the book of Mark, right after the miracle, the scripture says, and Jesus spoke plainly. Okay? So he's been doing... He's had these complex riddles and parables and metaphors and this cryptic language that he uses throughout the um, throughout the gospel. But this time he's speaking plainly. And he turns to his disciples and he says, the son of man is going to have to die. He's going to have to be rejected. He's going to have to be he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to be abused and he's going to die. And then he's going to rise again in three days. And and Peter, who had just gotten this this great insight, Peter when, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter, for the first time in the gospel, says, you are the Christ. 
He like gets the right answer and then immediately afterwards he misses the point completely because he pulls Jesus aside and says, don't tell people you're going to get hurt and abused and suffer. That's not what the Messiah does. That's not what the Christ does. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Um, so Peter in this one moment goes from the, you know, the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat. And I, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had those kind of moments where you, you do something absolutely right and you're just proud of yourself and you're just glowing with pride and then suddenly you totally blow it. Uh, and you totally, you totally mess it up. I had a great little hilarious thing happen at, at work this week. Um, uh, for those of you that are new, I'm, I'm also, I'm a lawyer by day and a, and a pastor by night. Um, but, uh, I had this, this client, this client that, uh, that I've been working with and I've been, I've been doing a really, I think a pretty, pretty good job on this case actually. Um, and I'm working with this partner and, you know, he's essentially my boss. And so I was just nailing it. Just everything that came down the pipe, I was handling it and everything. And then the client sends this email and he sends it to both me and my boss this week. And he says, hey, um, I've got the documents you guys wanted me to get. Should I courier them over or should I FedEx them? And also, do you want the originals or do you want the copies? So I, I say, oh, you know, I'm just going to. I'll just tell the client what we need. So I shoot him an email, and I CC my boss, and I say, just send us uh, the copies by FedEx. At the same time, my boss sends an email, and our emails are crossing in space at the same time, and his email says, we want the originals by courier. And I'm like, wow, um, okay, that was completely, we <laughs> and, you know, he was graceful about it. He was like, oh, well, you know. It could have gone either way, but, but you know, you ha- you're having this moment. You're just cooking along, and then you totally blow it. And Peter does this here. Peter comes forward with the right answer, and he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes. And then, G- and then Peter says, Jesus, don't tell people you're going to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter's, you know, Jesus and these are the Peter and the disciples have been with Jesus now for months, possibly years at this point, and they're still missing it they're getting it and they're missing it they're taking one step forward and one step back and that's the point that jesus i think is making uh with this uh with this miracle and that is that spiritual illumination develops slowly okay spiritual insight develops slowly develops gradually when an infant is born if you've ever looked at a little a little baby they their their nerve receptors in their retina and in their brain have not fully developed yet. If you ever look at a little baby, they you can see them, but they can't see you. What they see is a black and white shadowy sort of outline of something. They can see silhouettes. They can see sort of a vague outline, but they can't make out colors. They can't make out features. They can't distinguish uh, any details, all right? It doesn't mean that the details aren't there, right? It doesn't mean that the colors aren't there. It just means that the infant doesn't have the 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 physical wherewithal to see it. You see where I'm going with this? Um, they've even done this research where they, they seem to find that uh, an infant prefers looking at his or her mom over someone else. And the researchers were curious about this because they said, well, if the baby can't distinguish, you know, colors and details, how do they know that it's the mom? And what they did was they 
they did uh, they did a, a study where they would have the mom put like a hat on or a scarf on or somehow change the outline of her you know of of her features and suddenly the baby had no more preference for his mom's face than a total stranger's face because the baby the baby had just figured out that this dark shadowy outline that represents mom and when that outline was disrupted the baby didn't didn't even know that that was his mom okay so these ba babies sort of develop this ability slowly and after a few months they begin to develop some ability to distinguish colors and they can see red and green and orange but they can't see blue they can't see violet because those have shorter wavelengths and they just haven't developed the the um, the, the you know the the, the uh, nerves to, to distinguish those and so but slowly as the months go by these children these infants their visual acuity begins to strengthen and they can start to make, you know make out details and they can start to make out colors and pretty pretty soon within six months or so or a little more than that they're able to see almost as well as a full-grown adult. And what is fascinating about that is that the thing that they are looking at hasn't changed. It's just that their ability to see it and distinguish it has grown. Jesus is demonstrating in this miracle that spiritual insight, spiritual understanding comes slowly. The man first when Jesus first lays his hands on him, the man opens his eyes, and all he sees are what look like trees. He says, I see men, but they look like trees. And then Jesus, you know, prays for him again, puts his hands back on him, and then the man sees clearly. Um, even the Apostle Paul, we, you know, many of us are familiar with this, this road to Damascus, this conversion of the Apostle Paul. Paul, as, you, as many of you know, was a Pharisee. His name was Saul. He was, a, um, he was not a good guy. He persecuted Christians. He was you know, virulently opposed to the Christian faith. Uh, and he's coming into Damascus, and the Scripture says that he's breathing threats against Christians. He's, and a light shines from heaven, and Paul is knocked to the ground. And he says, Lord, who are you? And a voice says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And we tend to read that story and we think, wow, immediate, instantaneous, spiritual insight, a massive conversion. But what happens is this light blinds Paul. And the scripture says that Paul is blind for three days. And Paul goes into Damascus, and, it, and he, it's not until he meets Ananias, one of Jesus' followers, and Ananias slowly introduces him to the faith and slowly unveils who God is and slowly unveils who Jesus Christ really is. So even these sort of instantaneous conversion experiences demonstrate that we are coming to spiritual understanding very slowly, very gradually. It's a process. In uh, 1 Corinthians, years later, when Paul is a you know, an apostle, and he's at teaching, and he's preaching. He says, First uh, Corinthians 13, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish, childish ways. And then he says this great line, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, 
even as I have been fully known. So even the Apostle Paul is saying, we don't get to understand everything right here and right now. We are seeing through a glass dimly. We are looking at God and we are looking at the kingdom of God through the eyes of an infant. We are slowly developing an understanding. We are slowly grasping what God is and what he means to us and who he is in our life. But we can't get it all at once. What does that mean for you? That means that all of us, with respect to ourselves and with respect to other people, we have to exercise patience, humility, and perseverance in our walk with God. Patience, humility, and perseverance. Luke 21, 19 says, By your steadfastness and patient endurance, you shall win the true life of your souls. Romans 5 says, Moreover, let us exult and triumph in our troubles and rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that pressure and affliction and hardship produce patient and unswerving endurance. James 1.3 says, Be assured and understand that the trial and proving of your faith bring out endurance and steadfastness and patience. Psalms 41 says, I waited patiently and expectantly for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. And finally, Isaiah 40, 31 says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the song says, Teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, to wait. Okay, that's why I don't get invited to sing uh, on the platform. Um, none of us, here, here's, where I wa- here's where I want us to take this. None of us fully, completely, totally understand what's going on in our lives, what God has going on in our lives. We are looking through a glass dimly. We are in the middle of God's story. We're not outside of God's story looking down at our lives and saying, oh, I get it. I understand why I'm going through that. I understand why I'm struggling with that. I, you know, we're not doing that. We're in the middle of the story. And when you're in the middle of the story, you don't have the end yet. You don't have the whole picture yet. And, you know, this week in particular, there, you know, there are folks in this church and outside of this church that are just going through some things, you know, and I've just talked to a number of you this week. And I know that there are a lot of folks here that are going through some struggles and some issues that you can't fully comprehend. You can't completely understand why God has you in this situation. Is there anybody like that? I mean, it's hard sometimes to know what's going on, God. Why is this happening in this in my relationship? Why is this happening in my work? Why is this happening at my school? Why am I feeling this way? What is going on? You know, and sometimes we go through these periods and we can't comprehend it. We don't get it. And God says, just be patient. Just hold on. Just be humble and persevere. Because I am going to slowly, gradually reveal myself to you, reveal my plan to you. I'm going to reveal to you what the purpose of all this struggling was. That's not like a rabble, that's not like a rousing thing to say because we want immediate gratification. We want 
absolute immediate understanding. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to heal you in steps. This is going to be a gradual process. You're going to get a little bit, and then you might not understand for a minute, and then you're going to get a little bit more insight, and you might not understand. And even as long as we live, Paul says we're going to see through this glass dimly. We don't get to get the whole picture. If you can imagine what Jesus' disciples felt the night of his crucifixion, they've been following Jesus for three years, and then he is killed. They thought he was going to be king, and he wasn't. He died. But see, they didn't get the whole picture at that point. They ran scared. They betrayed him. They denied him. They were afraid. They were terrified. They hid because they did not understand that three days later he was going to rise from the dead. And that's where a lot of us are in our lives right now. We're in that place before the dawn. We're in that place where we're trying to understand, God, what do you have me here for? What's going on? What do you want from me? And God says, be patient. I'm going to your steadfastness and your patience is going to turn into fruition. You will reap the reward that I have for you. So it's a gradual process. The. um, The other part of the story that I that I love is that, first of all, two, two little details about the story. One is the blind man can't find Jesus on his own. Because he's blind. And so the scripture says that the people brought him to Jesus. Okay, they brought him to Jesus and they begged Jesus to heal him. So that's one aspect of the story. And the second part of that is that after the, the people brought Jesus, Jesus took the man aside privately, took him away and said, I need to talk to you alone. Okay, this demonstrates two key points that I that I would just want to touch base on real quick. Uh, And that is that spiritual growth and healing requires both community effort and individual personal engagement. It's both community and personal. Okay. How many of you, the first time you visited church or you heard about the scripture, you heard about God, you heard about the Bible. How many of you uh, had a personal visitation from almighty God who told you about it? None of us, right? All of us learned about God or came to a little bit of an understanding about God or learned about the scripture. We, we had some, from someone else, a mother, a brother, a grandfather, a grandmother, a sister, an acquaintance, a friend. Somebody brought us to God. Someone brought us near God and said, you know, come, learn. Here are the scriptures. Here's a church. Someone did that. We need this. We need community for our own spiritual strength and our own spiritual uh, for our own spiritual growth. We've got to do it in community. Hebrews chapter 10 says. Let us consider how to stir up one another. To love and good works, not not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And Proverbs 27 says iron sharpens iron. Even as man sharpens man, there is something so important. And, 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 you know, if you're here today, you probably already get this. There's something so valuable, so important, so essential about community, about coming together, about bearing one another's burdens, about encouraging one another, lifting one another up, praying for one another, 
deepening your relationship with one another. That's, you know, that's why we emphasize life groups. That's why we encourage you to take somebody out to lunch, get to know people, because we can't do this on our own. We need other people. God uses people in our lives to bring us to him. Over and over and over in the scripture, he uses other people to bring us closer to him. And so we desperately need community. We need to, to, to rely on each other and deepen our relationships with one another. And the flip side of that coin is that at some point, Jesus takes us aside personally and says, okay, I need to have a one-on-one, okay? And, and this is demonstrated by these two questions that Jesus asks his disciples, all right? He says, who do people say that I am? What's the community saying? And then he says, who do you say that I am? What do you what do you think about me? And so Jesus takes the man aside and engages him personally. Uh, there are a lot of different thoughts about why Jesus spit on his eyes. <laughs> and I, I mean, I looked a lot this week into different commentaries. Why did he do that? Why did he spit in his eyes? Um, some commentators said it was a sort of as a curse on the blindness. So that so that spitting is sort of a way to curse something. And he was and he was cursing the blindness. Others said that it was to engage the man's faith by doing this act. It inspired the man's faith. Another uh, commentator said that it was a way of addressing the unbelief of the city of Bethsaida. The truth is, it's not clear why he did this, why he spit on the man's eyes. But what is obvious is that the man allowed Jesus to perform this intimate act all by themselves, this strange act. The man was willing to allow Jesus to do what Jesus wanted to do in order that the man might receive sight. The man was willing to be honest in the moment. You know, what's great is that Jesus said, you know, he spit in his eyes and he said, now what do you see? The man could have said, everything's fine. I see everything fine, but he didn't. He was honest. He said, well, I see, but I see I see men as trees walking. And there's a uh, guy, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, did a sermon, and he said that um, if the man had not answered rightly when Jesus said, "How can you see right, uh, he said that the man would have spent his life cutting down people and talking to trees. So, um, <laughs> uh, But Jesus wants to know where our heart is. I want to encourage you today because, you know, I grew up in church. I know a lot of you guys grew up in church. Um, and sometimes in church, we're encouraged to mask the reality of our hearts because we don't want to be embarrassed because we don't want to be ashamed or feel, you know, like, you know, outside or whatever. But if you can be open your heart and be honest with God in your prayer, if you're struggling with belief or you're not sure what you believe or you're not just let just express that, express that to God. I mean, I love the guy in the scriptures who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, let let that moment linger between you and God. At some point, you are going to sit alone with God and he wants to know what you think of him. So don't he already knows. Don't be afraid to don't be afraid to express it to God. Don't be afraid to truly open up your heart. Be honest with God. Let your heart be known. It's scary to let your heart be known. And that's what, you know, and that's the point. You know, we enter into relationships and we never know 
what's going to happen. And you sort of creep forward in a relationship. Well, you know, she said this, so maybe she likes me and maybe I should say this. And uh, But you never know. And nobody wants to take that leap. Nobody wants to say, all right, I'm all in. Because you, you might get hurt. And Jesus is saying, give, give me a try. Let me just let me just step a little bit further with you. Let me take you aside and let me just be with you. Um, the question that sent the question in the scripture, the central question of the book of Mark is, who do you say that I am? That's the question. That's the whole book. That's the whole deal. Who do you say that I am? And the problem with that question, the challenge with that question is that implicit in the question is an expression of who we think we are. Because if we say, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Savior, what that means is, I need Christ, I need a Savior, I'm a broken individual that needs God. And that's not something that's easy for us to do. My son, Jameson, his favorite phrase is, I can do it by my own self. He says that all the time. I mean, if he wants to get out of the car, he wants to do it by his own self. He wants to do everything by my own self. And that is, and he's three. And it perfectly captures who we are. We are obsessed with our own self-sufficiency. We don't want to need other people. We don't want to be thought of as needy or broken or hurt. We want to feel like we've got it under control. And the problem is, I mean, you, you know, we, we all know uh, uh, that, that uh, an alcoholic, the first, thing, the first thing that an alcoholic has to say is, I need help. You know, I need help. It's only through that admission of weakness that you're actually empowered. It's only through that initial admission that I need help that you ultimately become what you're trying to be. And Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? Uh, uh, Keller, the, the, the minister that I referenced earlier, he says that the Bible comes as a sort of macro intervention. The Bible says that we're blinded by pride, self-centeredness, and the myth of self-sufficiency. It says we're in denial about the depth of our inhumanity. We're in denial about our own potential for evil. We're in denial about our own inability to handle our lives. And we are desperately afraid of the truth that we cannot run our own life. We know that Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And the problem for us is that if we admit that Jesus is the Savior, we have to admit that we need his help. And we don't want to do that. I can tell you personally, for me, this was the, this was sort of the core struggle of my faith life for many years. I was adamant about proving and demonstrating to anyone who cared, and it turns out not that many people cared, uh, <laughs> that I could do it on my own. And I just thought I wanted to prove this to the world. And, you know, and I was only damaging myself. I was only hurting myself. And it wasn't until I finally had... A, you know, a moment of real humility that was caused by a great loss in my life. It was only, it was only from that moment where I said, okay, I need help. I need God. I need, I can't do this on my own. And it was only after that point 
that I, my life began to become strengthened and, and that all the things that I was trying to prove about myself, all that, you know, that I was able to handle things. It was only after I admitted that I needed help that I actually was able to, 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 to live and be powerful and do the things that I really wanted to do. Because we have to, we have to admit that we need a Savior um, before Christ can come into our, into our heart. My favorite defense against, against you know, believing in Jesus was that, hey, the only reason I would even think about believing is because I was, it was the accident of my birth. I happened to be born into this family. I happened to be born into this country. And, you know, and so here we go. And so they want me to accept Jesus. And it's only because, you know, it's, 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 uh, oh, it's only because I was, it's an accident. It's only because I was born here um, that I even have to face this question. Have, have any of you ever thought that thought? You know, it's like, I, you know, I, I just I don't need to believe. It's just it's just pure accident that I that I'm even asked the question. Um, I remember distinctly the first moment that I challenged that thought in my own mind. I remember thinking that thought because I didn't want to answer the question who Jesus is because I just it just seemed like a, you know, just like, it just was a thought that had that that if I had been born in another country I wouldn't have to address this question, but I remember thinking to myself at one point what if it's not an accident. What if, what if I'm not an accident? What if God did put me here for a purpose? What if he did come to me with this question? What if he did put himself in front of me? What if the scriptures are trying to speak to me? What if God is trying to reach out to me through Christ? You know, and that's, and only then was I able to start really trying to come to grips with this question about who Jesus was in my life. You know, some of us have trouble answering the question because of the idols and the sins that we have in our life that we don't want to let go. We don't want to let go because if we answer the question in the affirmative, if we say, Jesus, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the Lord of my life, then that implies all kinds of things that we don't want to do. We have to obey. We have to follow him. We, don't, we have to give up some of our idols and some of our crutches and some of our sins. And we don't want to do that. Maybe that's in interfering at times with our, our ability to say, you're the Christ. Maybe some of us have been hurt by religion. Maybe you grew up in an environment where you were in a church and you were there was control or abuse or there's something like that. And you just say, I don't want to get back anywhere near that. It stung me too bad the first time. I don't want to get back in that relationship. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm here for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. You know, um, Maybe you think that it, to become a follower of Christ, you've got to give up your intellectual honesty. You have to start believing things that you don't really believe. Let me just, just as an aside, just say, Jesus is never, the scriptures never ask us to give up our intellectual rigor, okay? You're never going to have asked to be, you're never going to ask, be asked to dumb down yourself to be a follower of Christ, Okay? You're never going to have to check your brain at the door when you walk into this church or when you approach the scriptures. You're never going to have to do that. In fact, the cynicism and the skepticism and the sort of relativism that some of us have espoused before we became Christians, that stuff is what seems intellectually hollow after you really begin to explore the depth of what the scriptures have to say. So don't be afraid to come to Christ out of a fear that you're going to have to you know, deny your your own reason because you don't. It is a frightening 
thing to, to enter into a relationship. And I'll just give you a quick, quick anecdote uh, that, you know, when Rebecca and I first got together, it was we were both had our own our own our own baggage. What? I, I'm not going to say anything. But <laughs> we both had our own baggage, especially me. No. Um, and it was the first year was a lot of this. It was a lot of like, well, but if I put my heart out here, what if she rejects that? What if she turns me down? What if I'm disappointed? What if I'm hurt? What if I, you know, and she felt the same way. And it took us, it was a process for us to both eventually go, all right, I'm, uh, here we go. You know, and like you're, you step off, you step off the ledge and see if God is going to catch you, you know, what's going to happen. But when you do that, and all of you who are in good, loving relationships know this, that when you ultimately do that, the, 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 the growth and the development and the strength in your life so far exceeds what you had before that it's, uh, your, your previous life is almost unimaginable to you. You can't believe that you used to think that or used to do that and because it's just shallow. The, the other stuff is empty and shallow and hollow when you, when you really enter into a relationship with someone who loves you and you really love them and you give yourself to them. And that's what, that's what God is asking us to do. Just take a step towards me and I will love you and I will embrace you and I will forgive you and I will lead you. What if God has a plan for your life? What if you're not here on accident? What if God really is reaching out to you today and saying, I want you to know who I am? What if he's doing that? The truth is that today, each and every one of us that are here, we're all being invited into a deep, intimate, personal relationship with the one who claims to be the savior of the world. So the question is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? And I want to wrap up just with one more point from this passage. uh, And that is that spiritual reality is usually surprising and often counterintuitive. Peter, immediately after he says, Jesus, you're the Christ. A plus. And Jesus says, Okay, but I'm going to be I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be damaged. I'm going to be I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And and Peter completely misses the point because that those statements by Jesus run contrary to what Peter believed that Jesus was all about. Peter wanted Jesus to come in, get on the throne, clear out the Romans, clear out Herod, get everybody out of the way and establish a kingdom in Israel and right the wrongs and do justice on the earth. And Jesus is saying, oh, no, by the way, I'm going to get killed. And Peter says, no, that can't be right. Peter doesn't get it. Spiritual reality is the opposite often of what we think. And that's what happens to Peter. I love the, the analogy of the, the, the little fish in the fishbowl. There's this great little analogy where, so there are these fish in this fishbowl, and there's a guy that owns the aquarium, and he owns the fish. And every time he comes over to the aquarium to, to put food into the aquarium for the fish, all the fish see is this sort of hovering, shadowy, scary figure above them. And they think that it's a predator of some kind. And they run and hide under the rocks in the aquarium. So every time he reaches over, they see his shadow and they hide, right? And finally, the man says, you know, the only way that I can communicate to these fish and tell them that they don't need to be afraid of me is if I become one of them. And then I can go and tell them that, hey, that figure 
that you can't quite make out, that figure is trying to love you. That figure is trying to feed you. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. And that's, what, that's what's happening with Peter is that Peter is only seeing what he, he is a silhouette. He's only seeing that sort of vague shape of what he thinks God is. And Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom is different from that. Spiritual reality is radically different from the, from the truth of the world that we think we know. It's radically different. Peter, growing up as a little Jewish boy, believed that Jesus was going to come on a white horse, sit on the throne, and clear out all the injustice. And Jesus says, no. The paradox of the kingdom of God is that it overturns your, your conceptions about who I am and about the reality, about spiritual reality and about the kingdom of God. Jesus says, this is the kingdom of God. He says, you want real power? Let the greatest among you be the servant of all. You want real wealth? Give your money to the poor. Look after the fatherless and the widows. You want fame? Humble yourself and become lowly, and then you'll be exalted. You want independence? Admit your weakness and lean on me. You want freedom? Become a servant of the gospel. You want true life? Give your life away. You want to sit on a throne? Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is saying spiritual reality is totally the opposite of what you anticipate and what you think. What's interesting about these miracles that Jesus performs throughout this book is that every time he speaks the truth, every time he performs a wonderful work, every time he performs a miracle, he's putting another nail in his coffin. He knows that as the word spreads about him, he's edging closer and closer and closer to his own crucifixion. So even as he's opening the eyes of the blind man, he's thinking about the moment that he'll be plunged into darkness. He's thinking about how at the moment of his death, there'll be an eclipse that will cover the face of the, of the earth. He'll be, he'll be crushed by the sins of the world. He'll feel for a moment what it feels like to be totally abandoned. He cries out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? So when he's giving sight to someone else, he's anticipating his own blindness. He's anticipating when he's taking the sins away from the people in, in the scriptures. He's he knows that he's going to be bearing them. He knows that he's going to be carrying your evil, your sadness, your disappointment, your own shame. He's going to take all of that with him. He's going to carry all of that with him. Uh, and I'll close with a uh, few stanzas from uh, Mary's song, which was a great poem by a woman named Lucy Shaw and it says blind in my womb to know my darkness ended brought to this birth for me to be newborn and for him to see me mended I must see him torn and the song Holy Spirit Truth Divine says Holy Spirit Truth Divine dawn upon this soul of mine word of God and inward light wake my spirit clear my sight let me just encourage you today. Don't be afraid to edge forward into what God has for you. Don't be afraid to deepen your relationship with him. Don't be afraid to take a step closer to him. And if you're not certain where you are or what's going on in your life or what God has in store for you, just be patient. Just be patient. Just be humble and just be persistent. 
because God is revealing himself to you in stages. Don't be afraid to, to walk towards him. Don't be afraid of his light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,